When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Oak Leaves and Onions, which is not her real name. She is a, well, she used to be a stripper or exotic dancer, sorry. And she tried to speak about abortion on YouTube because she had complications with one of her pregnancies and wanted to give more nuance to that particular conversation. And then as she delved more and more into the issues that mattered with her on YouTube, she stumbled upon the concept of autoandrophilia or the opposite of autogynophilia, which is a persistent desire in herself to be a man or to be seen as a man. And so in this conversation, we talk about her life and her story and her sense of self and identity. And it's not what you would expect from what I just said to you. She's a really, really interesting person. And so I just asked the audience to suspend your expectations and meet this person if you haven't met her before. So if you want more of her, links to her YouTube will be down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Oak Leaves and Onions. What part of the country are you in, if you mind me asking? I don't want you to dox yourself. I'm just curious. Um, we're, we're in the South. <laughs> right oh. in the middle of it. Oh, cool. That's fun. Did you... Have you always been a southern lass? No, no. no, I grew up in uh, I grew up in the north. I won't tell you where that is either necessarily, but um, I I grew up in a very very rural, very isolated uh, northern area of the country, and um, it was winter all the time there. And so when I got to be an adult, I started traveling around, found some place nice and sunny, and I was like, "This is home." Hmm. Do you like being an adult? being what an adult uh well childhood wasn't great for me so i suppose um i uh i don't know my childhood wasn't a normal childhood so adulthood was me scrambling my way toward uh, a little bit of freedom and control as much as possible and then you know going from there um oh. and so it's been it's been good so far yeah why did you choose Oak and Leaves for your uh, online name? I had just had an abortion for medical reasons, and mm. I was very angry about the way that was handled. Um, and I was very angry about the way people responded to it. Um, and you would think that my anger would mostly be towards uh, pro-life individuals, but it turns out that if you have any complaints about the circumstances surrounding your abortion, um, pro-choice individuals will do everything they can to shut you up and call you a liar and say that you're making it up. And I got, I got, I was already very angry because my baby was dead. So I started a YouTube channel to talk about that issue, just the abortion issue, because it was very, um, it was very complex. There were, there were good arguments on both sides of the fence. And so I had plenty of ideas to explore and kind of pit against each other. And so I spent a good deal of time going through the back and forth on that. 
and I needed a name for the channel and it was, it was winter, which I guess is more like fall around here. And uh, I stepped outside and I was trying to think of a good name for the channel and I wanted something kind of wholesome and, you know, maternal. And so I had mm. seen enough mommy blogs where they had like, you know, all these, these cutesy kind of names of just random objects that sounded sort of homey and familiar. And I looked out at the yard and there were like oak leaves all over the yard and there were wild onions sprouting up everywhere. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. I can do that. And that's what I chose for the name. I spent a, a good portion of the early time that I had the YouTube channel hiding the fact that I'd spent eight years as an exotic dancer. Cause I was like, if people find out that like they're going to think I'm, you know, not, uh, not as wholesome, <laughs> huh. not wholesome enough to be having an objective opinion about abortion. So. Huh. Exotic dancer. Um, rough childhood, rural area only two ways out you can either go through the college route where you go to a nice college through you know i don't know scholarships and whatnot or you can join the military and get shipped out um really bad grades in school because of the whole rough childhood thing so i couldn't go to a nice college and the things that had happened to me in school had really ruined my health so i couldn't get into the military and so i was stuck there for you know several years after graduation and it was a bit of a brain drain. So all the smart, capable, you know, competent people left after graduating. And when I turned 21, I was, you know, trying out anything that would help me to recover from everything that had happened to me when I was a kid. And so I decided to, you know, try getting a job at a bar and exotic dance seemed like a good job to get at a bar. Mm. <laughs> and after that, I was able to, um, you know, save up money and start traveling the country and then use that as a, a way to finally get out. Yeah. Kind of like a traveling nurse, but with more sequence. More sequence. I like that. Um, yeah, I, I ended up going to, I ended up going to Seattle. I went to Portland very briefly. I went to California. Um, and then I ended up going to this, city that I had a friend who lived in and I came to visit and the air felt really good in my lungs and um, it was really beautiful. So I decided this would be a good place to try living for maybe a year before I move on to the next place. And I got here and it just felt like home. And so yeah. I stayed. Yeah. I'm sure you have had a lot of thoughts throughout your life over time about uh, sex and sex is like abortion, sex is children, sex is, um, you know, intimacy, then sex is, uh, something as a woman that you've used to, you know, as an economic source. Uh, how do you think like at 21, what you had to learn as an exotic dancer with your body being the site of, I guess, economic exchange and how you, how you conceptualize that and how you developed a, a stance towards that and where you yeah, are now actually, as opposed to then. Actually, that was interesting because, um, at that time, because of the way I had grown up and because of the things that had happened to me, I don't think I had the standard exotic dance experience. Now, I don't know if there is a standard exotic dance experience because most of the people who end up in exotic dance, um, they're very, um, 
they've had unusual life circumstances that kind of bring them there. But for me, um, I was incredibly dissociated from myself physically. And so my okay. body was like this separate entity that I existed around. Um, and I mean, the reason I, the reason I bring that up is because it does kind of play into, um, the whole autoandrophilia thing as well. But, um, I was trying to connect with it and reconnect, like being an exotic dancer, like the, the actual dance part of it was physically engaging enough that I was able to start rebuilding some strength in my body, which was pretty badly damaged by uh, the things that happened to me as a kid. And yeah. so I was able to physically reconnect with myself and kind of get a sense of being inside of my own body and also uh, build up some strength. But as far as, as far as the, as far as the economic elements of it, um, that wasn't as weird or as shocking for me as it probably was for some people. Cause like I knew an exotic dancer and the first time she went on stage, she got upset and had to run to the bathroom and puke. And that's not terribly uncommon. Um, for me, why, I, why do you think because of a male's male's attention, like objectification or I, I don't know. Like I, I, it was, it was such a non thing for me. Like I had heard, huh. I was nervous because I mean, it's, it's like public speaking. It's, it's a little nerve wracking the first time you do it, but I was expecting to, um, I was expecting to have feelings. And so I got up there and I was very nervous and I was, I had heard that the worst part was getting naked. So I got up there and I stripped out of my clothes right away and I'm standing there and it's like, okay, still no feelings. I was like, all right. Well, now what do I do? I have 15 minutes on this stage. I got to figure out something to do. And I ended up like just kind of sitting at the edge of the stage and chatting with the customers. And, you know, we, we actually had a pretty decent time just talking <laughs> and they gave me a few dollars and I was really excited because I made like $10 on my first stage set, which was not something I had expected. I had, I had not expected to be successful in that venture. I was just kind of trying it out because I didn't have any other ideas for what else to do with myself. And my life was in shambles and I needed to do something. So yeah. that was just me being proactive. Um, <laughs> it ended up being uh, just really, really perfect for me. And um, I have been aware throughout my life that I don't always have a, a normal um, emotional reactions to things. And so, that's probably also just a result of the, the upbringing. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't always feel the way I know I should feel or the way I expect that I should feel. And that can be advantageous. And it can also be something that's a little bit uh, difficult to work around. So like people will get upset and I don't always, I don't always understand. So when you asked about like why um, they got upset being on stage, not sure I can tell you. I mean, I'm sure it has something to do with, you know, just the sexual elements of it and the, the discomfort, but I'm, I'm not sure how that feels or how that would work. Um, but also like, um, I, I don't always, I don't always have an appropriate fear of danger. And so I have to be wary of that. Um, and, uh, again, that's just because I had a different life. Um, I was, I've been working on, um, trying to, put that into some context for people. Cause it's, uh, it, it's sort of there, it's sort of a, an issue. And, um, I was studying up on empathy just recently because, um, you know, there's, there's a sociopathic lack of empathy, but there's also an autistic lack of empathy and those aren't the same thing. Um, and apparently empathy kind of arises from two different parts of the brain. So you've got your, um, 
got emotional empathy where you see someone upset and you feel a sense of being upset because they're upset. But then you've also got your um, brain's going to block on the word. I think it's like logical empathy um, where you see someone upset and you can understand why they're upset because if they explain the circumstances around them being upset, it makes sense that they would be. Um, and in sociopathy, antisocial personality disorder, um, the sense of upset is you don't feel it, but you do kind of understand it when someone explains it to you. Um, in autism, you feel it. So you look at someone and you feel their emotions, but you don't understand why the emotions are there. And so for me, I've looked at it several times and I don't have autism. I have, I have ADHD. Um, I don't know how much you know about complex uh, PTSD. Uh, that's come up, but I'm, I'm welcome to explore it, um, especially from your point of view. Um, complex PTSD is uh, when somebody's been through repeated trauma over an extended period of time. And so it's not normal PTSD, which would be like a car crash. Uh, complex PTSD would be one of the things people reference a lot is uh, someone who spent many years living in a war zone or maybe was in a prison camp, um, just repeated repeated trauma. Um, and so frequently it's something you see in people who grew up in uh, an abusive home where they were constantly you know, in danger, constantly being abused, constantly being mistreated. And it, that just kind of became the world for them and their understanding of the world. And there was a there was an interesting um, observation that was made, and I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on this because I haven't read up on it lately, so I've forgotten a lot of the details, but there was a, a scientist, and he had a bunch of dogs he was studying. Um, I'm trying to remember. It might have been the guy with the bell. The Pavlov. Whose name I'm blocking on. Pavlov. It might have been Pavlov. I can't yeah. remember. Um, but he had a bunch of dogs, and they were in crates in the basement, and he was studying them. And I mean, he took good care of his dogs. But one day there was a flood and the basement flooded and he couldn't get to the dogs because it was a bad flood. And so all these poor dogs were stuck in this basement um, in these little cages and the water was rising and they, they were stuck there for quite some time. After that event, a lot of the dogs started showing some very unusual behavior. They wouldn't come out of the cages, even when the doors of the cages were opened. They just sit there in the cages crying. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, there's a there's a book actually called uh, the body keeps the score, um, and I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation of the author's name, but it's a very well known book when it comes to this subject. Yeah. Um, and he mentions that that set of circumstances where these dogs they've been they've kind of become through a traumatic event acclimated to being trapped inside their cages, so they can't necessarily process the idea that they can exit the cages, and that's something that happens with people who've been through extended trauma they their their sense of the world and their sense of reality kind of shifts and their understanding of the world around them shifts um but it can it, it can scramble your brains a bit and so mm. um the the thing with adhd and how that plays into um cpdsd is both of them uh affect the uh hypothalamus hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. And the reason I wanted to mention that one, because I, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that uh, a lot of people are talking about the hypothalamus of it because with autism, um, 
the the hypothalamus is usually uh, smaller structure-wise in people who have autism. I think that's how it works. In people with ADHD, which is frequently um, misdiagnosed, it shares a lot of symptoms with autism. It's um, the hypothalamus, they call it the HPA axis. The HPA axis is also affected in complex CPTSD. Uh, the HPA axis is affected. Um, at this point in time, I have no idea if I have ADHD or CPTSD. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but but, but you all, do know, you do know that you grew up in difficult circumstances. And yeah. So yeah. you do. You also know that you're different. You process specifically emotions, maybe, maybe social value. You have a different set of social values than most people, which doesn't mean that you're a bad person. I'm assuming you have ethical standards and stuff, but the way you process specifically empathy is, uh, and maybe connection, empathy, maybe, maybe empathy, like fear. Um, okay. Fear. Yeah. Fear's a big one. I, I don't have it the way I should. Um, you know, it, my understanding of the world is just slightly altered. Oh, but okay, is this, is this a problem I, for you though? Uh, socially, I'm still struggling along, but I'm getting better. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm 36 years old at this point, so I've had well over a decade to practice. I get along well enough. I can't read people, which is frustrating. So, okay. um, and that kind of is something that's shared by people with autism, people with ADHD. And um, mm. the reason I brought that up, interestingly, um, all of these groups of people also have uh, gender identity problems frequently, very okay. frequently. Okay. Um, so... so that's a that's an interesting segue. So you're bringing up a lot of different <laughs> things. I want to get back to the abortion thing, um, but it's not quite time for that. The exotic dancer thing is interesting to go from exotic dancer through the lens of that. So you're a naked woman, and I wanted to ask you about your craft. Like if you did this for eight years, you probably didn't just sit on the edge of the uh, stage and talk. I'm sure. Like what percentage of it was performance? Uh, in just a verbal exchange and what percent of it did you learn tricks and poles and uh, weird juggling things? Did you go in an acrobatic <laughs> direction? Um, no, how did, and how did it become like an art? A contortionist. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, how did you end up studying that or what was the uh, you know, path to mastering that? Well, I started working with uh, poles as much as possible. I saw a few pieces of pole art before I became an exotic dancer, and it was absolutely beautiful. Huh. Um, I was still trying to reconnect with and re-coordinate with my body because uh, for the first like year or so after I graduated high school, I didn't think that my body would ever function normally. And then I started slowly recovering, and I started getting more normal in my physical functions and realized that there was a possibility I could make a, 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 a full recovery. And is this and the so, result of environmental causes or uh, physical altercations? We don't have to get into, we can get into whatever you want to get into, um, but just for context. Um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't really know what you wanted to talk about when I came here. So I was just kind of <laughs> babbling. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I had, it's, it sounds really stupid. And I always feel kind of guilty talking about it because I do, it does sound very stupid. I had um, asthma as a child, still technically do have asthma. And um, asthma in and of itself is, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think I had particularly severe asthma, 
the problem was my teachers at the school that I went to did not believe that asthma was a real condition. So I did not receive appropriate medical care for my asthma. And it was exercise-induced asthma, so you go to gym class every day, and every day that you go to gym class, you start getting sick. And when you start getting sick, you are informed by the teachers that you're not working hard enough, you're not pushing yourself hard enough, your symptoms are mostly in your head, and um, you're imagining it all. And so then, you know, I would get, I'd be groggy and oxygen deprived. And when you're oxygen deprived, your limbs don't move because there's no oxygen to kind of feed your muscles. So you become kind of leaden and it's very difficult to coordinate. Um, it was hard to hold my hands steady. And so you're, you're groggy, you can't move around very well. And then you end up going to the rest of your classes for the day and, um, you know, not necessarily doing very well scholastically. Okay. And over the years, because this started when I was about in the second grade and then went all the way up until I was um, at the end of middle school, so 15, 16. And then I had a few little incidents after that. So when I was 17, I had a near-death experience where I um, completely stopped breathing at one point. Mm. Um, and by that point, it was just so normal. That was my world. Like, that was all I knew. So it seemed... I mean, obviously it was uncomfortable, but that was all I understood of the world. But, um, yeah, your, your body, you have the initial attack, but there's kind of a recovery period after that. And if you have another attack within that recovery period, it kind of further delays the recovery period. And over time through the years, like attack after attack after attack, eventually, um, I was just sort of weak and tired and mm -hmm. not particularly mobile and, I lived my life like that. Okay. And so at 21, when you start to use your body, you discover that you're not trapped in that cage per se. Um, it took a while. Um, the first club I worked at didn't have a pole. And so I was just sort of getting into the business and I realized that I really enjoyed dancing. Um, but I found another club that did have a pole and it was a rural area. So finding another club was kind of, you know, that was its own thing. But I went to the other club and started trying to figure out how the pole worked. And I was not particularly strong. So my first encounter with a pole, I was like all excited. I was like, oh, I can't wait to use this thing. And I walk up to it and I grab it as hard <laughs> as I can. And I try to climb and I can't get my feet off the ground because I was just too weak. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, very slowly start practicing, just doing basic spins around the pole and learning how learning how momentum works. So you, if you're not used to working with a pole, you know, usually when you jump forward, you move forward, like any direction that you jump, you're going to move in. But if you're anchored to a pole, you're going to move in a circle, but getting your body to coordinate to do that is something mm. that takes practice. So you can logic your way through it, but getting it to actually happen, building up that coordination takes time and building up coordination helped me kind of become aware of the dimensions of my own body because up until that point i kind of compartmentalized myself in my head in my own little space mm -hmm. and this whole thing was just something i was kind of trapped riding around in and i yeah. i thought of it as a lemon my whole life it's like everybody else got a, a functional body and then i got this <laughs> hmm. um so 
spent a lot of time, every every minute that I could pole dancing. So I would come into work before any of the customers had arrived while they were still just opening up the club. And I'd ask if I could use the stage to practice. And they'd be like, yeah, sure, I don't care. You know, as long as I wasn't doing drugs in the bathroom, they really didn't care. So mm. I'd, you know, go up on the stage and practice as much as I could, as hard as I could. And eventually I started getting more and more airborne. And then I started plateauing with some of the pole tricks. And then I would get frustrated because I was plateaued. And it was like, well, I'm going to practice stretching. And I practiced stretching until I could sit down on my chin and put my feet on top of my head. You could sit so, down on your then. chin. Yeah, you sit on your chin and you flip your body up so that your feet go back up over your head and then sit on your head. So your chin is taking the weight of your entire body. Is that what you mean by uh, sit on your it, chin? Well, your chin your and your shoulders, chin. usually you okay. kind of push your shoulders forward so that they can kind of hold up some of your weight because you don't want to put any of the the pressure onto your neck, as little pressure as possible on your neck. But huh. um, yeah, it's called a chest stand. It was really fun. Um, and then I retired as a dancer when I started having children. And so I okay. wasn't able to stretch as frequently. And I'm, I'm currently pregnant with kid number five. So I'm even more... Wow. um discombobulated than normal <laughs> really okay wow wow so, um so how does that how does becoming uh, a woman in the respect of, a mother sorry how does become a mother reorient yourself toward your body is that like a surprise when you're like oh this body can do this thing um not not intellectually surprised but when you're just talking about like getting to know your body as this interface between you and the world or you in the world. And then it starts to produce life. How, how does that change your perspective? Uh, for me, I didn't like pregnancy and I've talked to a lot of women about pregnancy and some women, mm. they just, they love it. Um, some women, they, the hormones start hitting and they just feel this wonderful, glowy, joyous, expectant feeling. And some women I know just absolutely love being pregnant. I'm the opposite. The hormones hit me and I feel completely out of sorts with my body. It's like, I can't exercise as hard as I feel like I need to exercise to mm. stay calm and comfortable. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to push myself that hard to, you know, avoid causing any harm to the baby. Yeah. And also I just, I, I don't feel good. Um, yeah. and I don't, I don't like any part of it. I kind of just grit my teeth and get through the pregnancy so that I can, you know, continue that whole procreative process. <laughs> and okay. having kids is nice. When when you finally meet the baby, that part is nice. And honestly, getting into the delivery room, I'm usually so relieved to be at the end of the pregnancy that it's like, <laughs> okay, I mean, I know this is going to hurt, but I can't wait for it to be over. <laughs> huh. um, and I'm not the only woman who's gone through that. Like I've known a few people where it's like, by the time you get to that final semester, it's like, I'm so ready for this to be over. I'm not enjoying this at all. Um, in, in light of what you're saying about connecting with people or how you connect through empathy differently than other people, how is it to be a mother in regards to all that bonding stuff that's going on with you being the pr primary principal, this baby feeding on you externally, um, all the other things that kick in when the baby's a human that's attached to you rather than a life inside of you? That part actually has not been difficult, which I guess I should be really grateful for because I never considered that it might be. Um, it, that part, you know, is is really quite natural and normal. It's like, you know, I, I think babies are adorable, like addictively adorable. So I just spend every minute that I can holding them and cuddling them. And 
I have this, um, like every mom I know has like her weird little thing that she really likes about babies. But for me, it's the soft spot on top of their head. Cause they've uh-huh. got that like downy, downy, super soft baby hair. And so I'll just sit there rubbing my cheek against it for like the longest time. <laughs> and that's, that's just hmm. what I like to do. <laughs> hmm. Um, so yeah, like I, I love having kids. Well, um, you keep on having them. So there's gotta be yeah. something going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we were going to stop at four and we managed to get our fourth, which was kind of a battle because we had to have, we had the abortion and then it took three years to conceive the, the last one. Yeah. And so we didn't think there were going to be many more after that. And we have, we weren't trying to avoid it because I said, well, anywhere between four and six is what I'm good for. Hmm. Um, but I didn't expect, I, I didn't expect anything to happen. So this one caught us, caught me at least very much by surprise. And we just kind of looked at it like, Oh, okay. Um, hmm. We didn't know. We didn't know if it would be viable because we've had, this is pregnancy number eight and we only have four kids. Um, but so far, so far it's acting viable, you know, I'm, I'm nauseous. And so that's pretty normal. How, pretty how far in are you at this point? Uh, I think seven ish or eight ish weeks, something like oh, that. Wow. So it's really okay. early. I yeah. actually, uh, I actually found out the day you first messaged me. So I found oh. out and then I checked my inbox and noticed that I had a message and it was like, this is just a day for unexpected things. <laughs> Surprise. Yay. Huh. <laughs> And uh, I don't know to what extent you want to get into the abortion, but I am curious about how, uh, if you set up your YouTube channel specifically to talk about that, um, where did you start with your perspective and how, how, how has it evolved after studying and looking at all these different sides, if it's possible to like encapsulate? Well, I, I kind of set it up for that. I ended up just kind of talking about sex and human sexuality in in general, um, because abortion got got boring and I moved on. Yeah. But, uh, when I initially started talking about it, I was, I was mostly just talking about just all the arguments around it. I tried to, to look at both sides of the argument and kind of get an idea of both perspectives. And the whole game that I was playing was just try to hold both perspectives in my head at the same time as much as possible, which can be kind of exhausting. Um, but I also looked at, at, at the flaws in each argument that I found. So every argument, the left argument, the right argument, or the pro-life argument, the pro-choice argument. And I found some really fascinating things. Like I learned about all sorts of rare and unique pregnancy complications that result in fatality for the baby um, that there's, there's just not much you can do. And I talked with a lot of people and people would be like, oh, well, the tests are inconclusive. And I was like, no, the screenings are inconclusive. The tests are DNA. They are very certain. Hmm. Um, And so there's a lot that people don't know. There's a a tremendous amount of misinformation. And ultimately, at the end, I started getting very jaded because it didn't matter what I discovered. Um, Nobody was particularly interested in the facts. They were much more interested in seeing their team win. Yeah, um, yeah. Neither side was particularly interested in compromising. Neither side was particularly interested. And in, I mean, and it is a very difficult um, situation because for a normal standard abortion, I can see why neither side would be willing to compromise. Like it, there's, there's comes a point where neither side should compromise almost um mm-hmm. you know you've got your your people on the pro-life side who are like that is a human being 
you can't erase the fact that that is a human being. It's like, well, you're, you're right. That's very true. And then you've got your people on the pro-choice side who are like, well, um, I'm 19. I made a dumb mistake and I'm not going to pay for it for the rest of my life. And it's like, well, I can't necessarily fight her on that either. Hmm. Um, cause I've watched, I watched a lot of videos of girls talking about their abortions. And I mean, I talked about mine, but mine was different. Like yeah, ours was a older. trisomy 18 baby. Uh, uh, yeah. Sorry. So I was like a trisomy 18. It's a genetic condition. The babies do not live. Um, there are very rare circumstances. And I argued with people about these rare circumstances. There was one kid who lived to like 21 years of age, maybe 22. I can't remember. Very, very unusual circumstances. And his mom spent her entire life resuscitating him because he kept just stopping. Like the body is designed to just stop. Um, I did talk, I did speak face to face here in, in, in this, uh, in town with a lady who had a trisomy 18 baby like mine, and she worked very hard to give birth to him. And he lived for, I think about a month before he passed away. Hmm. And it was, it was extremely difficult for her. She ended up, I think four months later, ended up checking herself into a mental institution just to kind of recover because she couldn't cope. Um, for me, we, we did the abortion at 17 weeks. So I'll, I'll enter into a conversation on the internet and mention that I had my abortion, you know, at that late stage of pregnancy and people will kind of roll their eyes and go, you know, why weren't you responsible, responsible enough to get it done earlier? And it's like, well, we didn't know the baby was dying earlier. Um, so it's very different circumstances, but, um, the really wonderful thing is we ended up going to a hospital to do it and they cremated his remains and gave them to us. So he actually has, um, a gravestone at the local cemetery. Wow. So obviously you didn't take this lightly. Obviously you were of the opinion that this is a human being that you were charged with bringing into the world. And in our case, yes, for our yeah. son, yes. For other people, you know, other people have different opinions and different beliefs, but for us, it was our job to, we couldn't keep him alive, but it was our job to protect him from suffering unnecessarily. Yeah. Hmm. What's the difference between what's the difference? Just a slightly pivot. What's the difference between like baby boys and baby girls? Do you, I, I guess they're all unique. What's your spread? <laughs> like when you have baby boys and baby girls? No, no uh, yeah, not um, just the genetic stuff, but like just interacting yeah, with them and your feelings for them. Yeah. Um, your connection to them. Is it I don't notice a difference in connection with them. Yeah. However, I will say that I can always tell the gender of the baby before the baby is born because I always get heartburn with the boys and I never get heartburn with the girls. So even the kids that um, I miscarried, I still have a pretty decent idea, like which, whether it was a boy or a girl, hmm. um, because the heartburn is just it's a dead giveaway, like about maybe 10 weeks in. Like the heartburn kicks in. It's like, Oh, that was a boy. <laughs> okay. So any day um, now then, huh? Yeah. It, it should be a week or two from now that I'll be, you know, either not getting heartburn or getting heartburn and being like, Hmm. So like, it's funny cause I, we do genetic testing because trisomy 18 has happened once. We want to make sure that we know if it's happening again. Um, and when the doctor calls me up to tell me the gender of the baby, I'll be like, let me guess it's a boy. And I'll be like, that's right. It's a boy. <laughs> hmm. 
So it's fun. It's like a it's like a magic trick, except it involves a lot of anti uh, antacids. So oh no, <laughs> why have so many kids? Why is that a value of yours? Um, let's see. A lot of different reasons. I, I have a rule. I never do anything big for just one reason. Hmm. Um, part of it is a certain degree of. Well, one big reason, I want them to have each other. Um, I want them to have family. I have this strong belief that the people that you have in your life, the, the connections that you have to the people around you in your life are what keep you alive. And that's a belief that I've had reason to uh, maintain over the years. Um, if they have brothers and sisters, especially I try to keep them all close together. So if they have brothers and sisters who are close to them in age, they have kind of a, a an inbuilt community. Um, when COVID struck, it was really quite nice because we had three kids. And so COVID came along, they were all out of school, but they had peers that they could still play with. And so they would like, every, everything was locked up, but we just send them out into the front yard where it was all fenced in and safe. And they would all just play with each other. And it was like a lengthy recess, but it was at that age, it's important for them to socialize with other children so they can develop healthy social abilities. And obviously that was a, a problem for me growing up. So I wanted that mm. for them. And so like the girls are one year apart. Um, they're like, they're, they're very much like twins. They do everything together, very different personalities, but they get along really well. And then the boys, we tried to get them as close as possible, but it took three years to conceive the last one. So they're not quite as close together, but they do play together a lot. They play together really well and they like each other. So they have, they have people in their life that are close to them. And so that's important. Yeah. Um, also there's a part of me that's very, um, I don't know, kind of Darwinian about it where it's like, well, this is what a biologically successful organism would do. So I'm going to do this thing. And Mm. we'll see where it goes. And also again, like it's not just, it's not just the kids who are benefiting from this. It's also probably going to be me as the years go by. Um, I don't always feel like I have a reason to stay alive, but I have them and they need a mom. And so as long mm. as I can be present in their lives and somehow of service to them, it gives me a reason to, it gives me one extra reason to wake up in the morning. And that's important. Yeah. I was going to ask if there's any spiritual or like, uh, yeah, destiny uh, aspects to this. Like this is your destiny is beyond just practical considerations, but no. <laughs> getting up in the morning is probably sufficient. It's a good motivator, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And then gender. So your mom, you're a very fruitful mother. Uh, exotic dancer. So you're in, in contact with your female body as a female body. Um, uh, quite a probably lot. up to probably you're in the top percentile of, of being in that form. Yeah. I kind of did the woman thing about as much as a person can. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was not my intent in that way. Um, I, I looked at it as life as something that I wanted to experience. And so I'm just, in the process of experiencing life, um, quite a bit as, as much as possible, really. Um, 
I, with the exotic dance thing, like a lot of people, and this was something that I, that, that kind of came up like immediately when I brought up the fact that I initially suspected I was autoandrophilic. And then as time passed, I became much more certain. Uh, the more I learned about it, the more I became certain. Um, for me, exotic dance was about the athleticism. And I, I needed that to kind of connect with myself physically, like just not, not necessarily in a gendered sense, but just, you know, arms, legs, you know, this is, this is a human being. Um, and, you know, every part of me, I was, it was deeply disconnected from. So, you know, my, my fingers, my toes, all of it. And so just yeah. getting myself physically into my own body and being aware of that and connected to that. And it's very easy for me to start peeling away from it again. So I kind of have to exercise regularly and just kind of try to be mindful, which is not my strong point at all. Hmm. But, uh, the, the physical exercise and also the muscles that came with it because exotic dance, especially if you're doing all the acrobatic stuff, there's a build that comes with it. Like I remember for a long time sitting in the club and I could tell when a new girl came on stage, it's like, she's very new to the business. And it was just, you could tell just by looking at their body because the muscle tone underneath, like even women tend to be a little softer, they're a little more curvaceous. There's not as much, uh, because of fat distribution, there's just not as much um, tone like that you can see, but you can still see it on an exotic dancer. Like you can still tell that there's muscle, like even for overweight exotic dancers, there's still a lot of muscle in there because you're, you're dancing all day long. Hmm. Um, so I was, I was very pleased with how muscular I became on that job. Yeah. Um, and then also I got to hang out with men all day. And so, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the dancers would hang out with each other and they would socialize with each other and I would hang out with the customers and socialize with the customers. And I'd, you know, find somebody who was interesting to talk to. And you have a lot of freedom as an exotic dancer. You kind of set your own schedule. So I'd spend like an entire evening talking with some random person I found in a club who was interesting to talk to. And, hmm. um, What's the exchange there, that the the human exchange there? If you know that there's some aspect of sexual gratification that the man is prompted to be after to be in the place where you are at, and there's some sort of sexual aspect to that, but you're connecting with them mentally and psychologically, how's, how does that shake out and how, does it, how did that shape the experience and how did you navigate through those currents? Well, I I think this is one of those situations where the, uh, my, my inability to feel feelings that normal people feel was kind of there. I didn't mm. necessarily feel sexual about any of it. Hmm. And so for me, it was just having fun, hanging out, meeting people. Um, and I knew that other people were feeling sexual feelings, but that, that was their problem, not mine. Um, hmm. <laughs> so for me, it was like this wonderful, like kind of, it was almost like a hunting game. It was, it was like a adult laser tag. Almost you go in and you know, you have your team and they have their team and you're playing this game and you're each trying to kind of one up each other and they're trying to get sex from you, but I'm trying to get money from them. And so we're kind of doing yes. this, this kind of back and forth. And, and um, I, I enjoyed that game very much. Um, probably because I won more than more often than not, or at least in my opinion, I won, I got money and they still didn't get to take me home. So yeah. it was, it was uh -huh. a fun game. The idea of the idea of it was that nobody gets hurt, which I mean, sometimes people do develop the uh, feelings when they do get hurt, but as a general rule, nobody gets hurt, but there is a very um, predatory aspect to it. You know, you're stalking around in a club trying to find 
people who are going to be more inclined to give you money. So you're looking for, you know, you're looking through the crowd for anybody who might be more prone to, um, <laughs> I don't know, you're looking for victims, except you're not actually victimizing them. So everybody's going home happy. Yeah. Um, huh. And it, it, it felt like, you know, it, it felt like I was going out hunting and it's like, yay, I'm yeah. going to go hunting. <laughs> huh. But uh, it was, it was, it didn't quite have like, a strip club is like the doorway to or the gateway to the underworld. There's, there's a lot of dark stuff in the world. You know, there are drug dealers, there are pimps, there are criminals. I've met plenty of them. Um, I, I spent a week, I traveled, uh, I traveled to Seattle and I met up with this guy that, uh, you know, we, we happened to start talking outside of a library and he offered to show me around Seattle and we had a great time. He was like 44 and I was 21. Hmm. Um, and we just hung out, walked all over, all over the city. He showed me the sites um, we'd buy each other coffee and just kind of sit around talking and yeah. he was a murderer. He had killed people. Oh, just, uh, <laughs> casually or like, a... um, like we were <laughs> one evening, like I was trying to scope out possible jobs, uh, clubs that I wanted to work at. And so I found one and they told me how to get a license and they wanted me to work at their club. And so, Oh, you have to get a license to... to be naked in Seattle. Yes. Oh, um, and so we went to this little hamburger place afterwards and, you know, we're sitting there having a hamburger and I've got my coffee and I'm sipping my coffee and he's got this really thoughtful look on his face, you know, just kind of weighing me up and judging me. And finally he's like, so the first time I killed someone, I was 14 years old and I'm sipping my coffee like, yeah, no surprises there. Uh, <laughs> it's huh. like, just stay calm, be quiet, listen to his story. And so I did. And yeah, he, he only admitted to killing one person. Um, because he had only ever done time for killing a person, but the person that he killed was not the person that he did time for killing. And, um, mm. I get the impression, I get the very strong impression that he killed more than one person. Hmm. Like, cause you don't, if, if you killed somebody, you say, I killed somebody. You don't say the first time I killed somebody, um, so, you know, and I mean, a lot of people I've talked to are like, well, how do you know he really did? How do you know he wasn't just saying it to impress you? It's like, his... <laughs> to impress you. <laughs> you. You can tell a murderer how when do you a, How to impress a stripper. Talk about murder. <laughs> tell him that you murder. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've had guys come into the club and try to pretend to be a badass. And the funny thing is, yeah. like, if you're a stripper for eight years, you meet enough genuinely badass people that when someone's pretending... Yeah. It's comical. Yeah. The, well, okay. This, the, again, this is gender. So what you're describing is a very gendered activity. You're, you're prowling men or you're shuffling through men, um, and men of a certain stripe, uh, men who would end up in this, uh, in this or frequent these joints. Um, and then there's probably like a broad spread of men, you know, probably CEOs, yeah. murderers and everything in between. Um, but you ends up in a strip club eventually. I did once, but my, fr <laughs> it, that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> I was surprised. Um, I didn't expect it to be the way it was, but that was the only time <laughs> I was there. It was really interesting. But um, so you're seeing how men behave. You're seeing what men want. If you have autoandrophilia, can we can we define that from your point of view? Autoandrophilia is a uh, variant of autogynophilia. So autogynophilia is a man whose sexual orientation is to basically get off 
at the thought of being a woman. So how does it auto androphilia be somehow being sexually aroused or, um, you know, satisfied by the thought of being a man? Is that true? What is it to you? It's, I think it is like, like I've, I've thought about that quite a bit with, at first I didn't think I was autoandrophilic because I wasn't thinking of it as a sexual thing. Um, I it never thought of it as a sexual thing. It was like, well, there's something going on, but it didn't seem sexual. And then I started looking into it and researching it. And, um, you know, it, it seems like it's something that is rooted in a person's sexuality. And I actually, I made a video about that at one point, cause I was still trying to figure it out. Um, is it just part of your personality that you perceive yourself as male? And then that has obvious logical sexual tie-ins where if you perceive yourself as male, you're going to continue to perceive yourself as male when you go to bed with someone. Or are you sexually going, is it a sexual thing that slowly branches outward into your personality? And for the yeah. longest time, I thought it was something that originated in my personality that eventually um, became sexual as I you know, developed into a sexual being. But uh, looking at Blanchard's work, looking at uh, Phil Lilly's book, actually, um, which I, I found out about through your channel. Hmm. So I'm glad you interviewed him because I, I really like that book. It's been very informative. Hmm. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to think that that's how it works, that it does actually originate in a person's sexuality and it branches outward into their personality. So when you think of somebody who I, I think of gay people as being an excellent example where they've got. A, a an alternate sexuality from what we consider to be standard or normal and there's kind of a, a stereotypical personality that goes with that I, I guess personality isn't necessarily the right word but there's something there's a certain stereotypical element there's a, a feel or a vibe that goes with that and it's something that i think a, a lot of gay people that i've known have kind of complained about it where it's like it's something that's acted out by a lot of gay people where they just really really amp up that that vibe and there are plenty of perfectly normal ordinary gay people who are looking and saying you know it's an act it's not particularly genu genuine and it's kind of annoying hmm. but there is also there is also a certain degree to which i think a, a person's personality is somewhat colored by their sexuality, which would make sense because sexuality is a part of a person's personality. So a person's, a person's sexuality is going to affect their overarching personality in a multitude of nuanced ways. And so I think for myself, I never considered it to be a, a thing that had any particular root in my sexuality. Um, it didn't feel sexual. It just felt right. So like what felt right. Hang, um, masculine activities, hanging out with men, um, doing masculine things like anything, um, wearing more masculine clothes. It was just, it, it, it just was the way I was like, it was just kind of part of me. And so, you know, exercising a lot in the pole, it was, it was, um, you know, I got paid to basically go to a gym and that's how I saw it. It's like, you know, as an yeah. exotic dancer, you get paid to go to a gym. And so all the muscles that came with it and the muscle tone and all of that, it, it just felt right to me. And so I actively pursued that. Um, 
male companionship, hanging out with men. Like it wasn't a lot of the guys I talked to in the strip club would say, I seemed like the kind of girl that they'd want to go out and have a beer with. I wasn't exactly like girlfriend material or, or I wasn't their sexual fantasy. I certainly wasn't the prettiest girl in the club and I never wore makeup. So I wasn't as, hmm. as perfect and porcelain and doll like as the other women. Yeah. I was super why athletic, which made for an, why didn't you wear makeup? I don't like it. You don't want to see yourself that way. Or you just didn't want to bother. It's uh, physically unpleasant, the sensation of having makeup on your face. And then you have to wash it off and you have to make sure that it doesn't give you acne. And it's actually not very good for your skin. And so I just looked at it was like, well, if this isn't a requirement, then, hmm. you know, I'm not going to. And so, so what I didn't. Are, and I, what are men paying you for if they don't necessarily see you as like girlfriend material or necessarily? Um, usually it was the contortions, the acrobatics. They thought that was entertaining. Yeah. Um, some girls they'll sit and talk with and different people have different strategies. So some girls will sit and talk with uh, a guy, they'll pick out one guy and they'll talk with him all evening and then they'll go to the back room and they'll sell some VIP dances and it's like, you know, $400 a dance, for example, and it changes from club to club. So sometimes it's $600 per dance and they'll sell like a bunch of these expensive dances to the guy. So they'll spend like three or four hours back there and that's how they'll make all their money for the night. And they can make a massive amount of money doing that. Um, I saw one girl, she made uh, $2,500 in one night off one guy. Hmm. And I saw her at the end of the night. She was just counting out 20s on a table and putting them in neat little rows of 100. Um, just to count them and get them all organized at the end of the day. That doesn't happen every night. So you have to find a guy who actually likes you enough to do that. And so those girls, you know, they they don't sell as many dances, but when they do sell dances, they, they tend to hit the jackpot. My strategy was quite different. Um, I would go up on stage and I would do as much acrobatic stuff as I could to really try and get people's attention. Um, my stage time was kind of my advertising. I, I hmm. flip myself upside down or hold myself out in, out in midair or do some, you know, kind of crazy acrobatic thing. And then I'd look at the crowd and I'd see whose eyes were on me, you know, who's, who's paying attention, who's watching. And then as soon as I got off stage, I'd run over to those individuals, be like, Hey, would you like a dance? And usually they'd be like, yeah, you know, and we'd talk and they give me, you know, 25 bucks for a song. And then I'd run back out, find another person who had been watching me, ask them if they want to dance. And they know me as this, you know, kind of entertaining acrobatic. I, I tried to be enter you know, I tried to be fun about it on stage, uh, not necessarily sexy, but fun. And they'll get a song over that. At that point, it's kind of like, um, at that uh, point, it's kind of like a, a ride at a, yeah. yeah theme park. <laughs> and so, yeah, a ride at a theme park. Exactly. Huh. Um, and so, you know, I, I was busy. I was, I was selling dances all night long. I sold at one point, one of the guys who was keeping track of the dances told me I sold more than any other girl in the club because I was selling them all night long but it's only 25 bucks. So it doesn't add up to nearly as grand of a total in the end of the, yeah. at the end of the day. But I mean, I had fun and I earned enough money to pay the rent and I didn't, I didn't grow to resent my customers the way I saw some girls resent their customers. Like I, I remember one gal, she had a regular who would come in specifically to see her and spend you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars on her. And there was one day they were walking toward the back room together there were mirrors on the walls and they're talking 
and he had his he had his back turned and he couldn't see her and i caught her reflection in the mirror and she was glaring at him with this look of just deep and intense disgust <sighs> like she just couldn't stand his guts and i remember thinking that i was very very grateful i had never become so financially dependent on any of the customers that i felt a need to do that like i could just meet random guys and have fun and so usually like young guys they're out for a bachelor party they're drinking they're in a pretty good mood you know here give me 25 dollars. i'll fold myself into a pretzel you know hmm. Hmm. Well, what is your stance on uh fidelity in that context if there's married men around and stuff have you considered that like there's kind of like some sort of moral again you said that's the gateway this is a gateway um, yeah as far as married people go it gets interesting and complicated very quickly so i've seen married couples come in together and that's kind of fun because you know they're doing it as a, a bonding thing where and it's kind of we're in this sort of taboo sexual place and kind of naughty and she's kind of excited and he's kind of excited and so that can be really sweet i've seen a few couples who've done that where they're just you know, they're doing it to try something out and they're being kind of sweet. One of the first clubs I worked at, I remember this couple, ancient, just really, really elderly couple. And they came in and they sat down at the table and they're holding hands together and they're smiling. And they both have these just sweet, happy smiles on their face, kind of dreamy smiles on their face. And I was like, what are these people up to? So I came over to their table and I sat down, said hi and started talking with them. And they were in their 90s and they were celebrating, I think, like their 70th anniversary or something. And they wanted to go back to the club that they used to hang out at when they were young. Um, and so there they were. And it was like, I, I cried. I cried. I thought that was the sweetest thing I'd ever heard. It was like, I want to be like you guys when I get old. Because huh. um, they were just they were just so sweet. Um I've seen, I saw one elderly gentleman, he came in and he was very embarrassed about this and he was very secretive about it, but you know, we're sitting and we're talking. And the reason he was coming in was because he wanted to, um, he wanted to pleasure his wife and he had come in so that he could kind of get himself revved up and excited so that he could go home and do that. And he was an elderly man. And so he was like, you know, you, you can't tell anybody about this. I was like, I promise I will not tell anybody about this, which you don't even know what state I was in. So I'm not telling anybody about this, but yeah. um, uh. you know, that that's a thing that happens. Like sometimes they come into clubs to kind of, you know, I don't know, just find some inspiration so that they can go home and, you know, be a little bit more active with their partners. Um, I've seen people who were unhappy. There was one guy who came in and he was in a sexless, loveless marriage with his wife. It was a very long marriage. So, um, he had been it had been a sexless marriage for a long time and he found out that he was having a health problem which lowered his testosterone and he started taking testosterone again and his his desire for sexual activity returned and she wasn't interested in she basically told him yep it's not going to happen there's no way so that's the end of it hmm. and he was terribly lonely and he didn't know how to handle it and so he came into the strip club and he's like i don't know what i should do and strip clubs can very easily become like discount therapy where people come yeah. to you and they just need someone to talk to. Yeah. And so, you know, we're sitting together. He was a very nice gentleman, but he was like, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, should I cheat on her? I don't know. And I'm sitting there like, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. Um, and so like those do happen. I remember one particular, uh, I think it was a bachelor party, but it could have just been a group of guys who were out for a night of fun. 
Um, and all of the dancers were angry at them, all of the dancers. And what had happened was they had come in, they were all married. They all had wives and they were like, we're all married. We have wives. So we don't want to cheat on our wives, but, um, we want you guys to give us blowjobs. And number one, that's prostitution. We don't do that. And number two, we're like, that's still cheating. Like <laughs> if I was married and somebody, you know, and my husband did that, that would still constitute cheating. Like if I did that, that would constitute cheating. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want to cheat. We just want a blow job. Um, and it was like, I, we all, we were all like, <laughs> some right. of the girls were talking about how they wanted to like get a hold of the wives and be like, Hey, did you know your husbands are doing this sort of thing? Yeah. Um, maybe it was hand jobs. It was something, I think it was either hand jobs or blow jobs, but it was, it was, it was something that was clearly, you know, clearly cheating and also clearly illegal because, um, in that particular, there are different regulations wherever you go. So it varies, um, county by county. And so in that particular area, the, the list of laws was like pages and pages long regarding yeah. what did and did not count as prostitution. So it was like, it wasn't just a little illegal. It was very illegal and it was illegal for them to be asking about it. And it was illegal for us to be talking about it. And it was illegal for, you know, it, it was illegal in that club, in that part of the country for a man to be physically aroused in public. And I was like, well, that's a law that gets broken a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, and so this but, is public, like this, this bar, this club is considered a inside, public venue. Yeah. Inside the club, it was illegal for him to be aroused. Okay. Notice. So, I mean, yeah, notice. Uh, yeah. If, if he's visibly aroused, then that's, that's wrong. Or just if he's aroused, I guess it doesn't matter if it's noticeable or not. Um, it's just illegal. And it was one of those laws that was like, whoever wrote this didn't really think yeah. things through. I mean, and the way the laws were written in that particular area. Okay. I, I understand just... open carry, but, <laughs> but concealed carry, like how are you going to freaking police that? The laws were written in such a way that they were trying to make life as difficult as possible for people in the business because they don't want people to be there. So they make yeah. the laws okay. yeah. um, either ambiguously worded enough that they're easy they to catch people doing you. something yeah. wrong. Yeah. And so my favorite was the three quarters law where you had to cover three quarters of your butt at all times when you weren't on stage. Three quarters. And I remember asking again and again, can somebody please clearly define to me what is three quarters of an ass? It's Nobody like ever really could. Granny underwear with one cheek cut out? I don't <laughs> <laughs> That would be fun. Like I, I kind of wanted to get a diagram and some like colored pencils and just kind of color in the diagram. Like, like okay, the cuts of a you side can have of beef. underwear that looks like this yeah, or underwear totally. that looks like this or huh. there was, there was one day there was a girl who was particularly um, well endowed in the rear and one of the, one of the bouncers. And I mean, I hung out with the bouncers instead of the dancers. Um, they were like, you know, she, she has to wear underwear that covers three quarters of her butt. And the bouncer looked at the other bouncer and said, what is she supposed to wear? A pillowcase? And he was like, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the bouncers were more fun. <laughs> well, is that, is that part of this? So how does auto androphilia, does it, is it a block for you or is it a way of connecting? 
to your spirituality through uh, sexuality through your sexuality to to men like how does it, is it a block for you is it a distraction for you is it a I think I've just always sort of um I think I've always perceived myself as more innately male um just internally okay and so you know when it comes to sex it would be perfectly natural for me to assume that I'm male um and it never seemed it never seemed like a particularly problematic thing um it it was just a quirk like for many many years it was just a quirk and i've talked to a few other people where it's like yeah i thought it was a quirk for the longest time um like a quirk how like well it I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Harry Benjamin, and I don't know how accurately Harry Benjamin's work applies to this, but uh, Dr. Harry Benjamin, at one point, he was uh, he was working in gender clinics, and, well, he was working, I don't know if they were gender clinics, but he was working with people who were struggling with their gender identity, and he developed kind of a scale of intensity of gender dysphoria. Okay. And so you've got people who are extremely gender dysphoric who really, really want sex reassignment surgery, and then you've got people who are... You know, it, it's it's a thought. It's kind of something that's, you know, it's there. It's intriguing, but it's not like a hardcore issue. And uh, and it, it, a lot of people complain about Dr. Benjamin's work. Um, a lot of people complain about the Harry Benjamin scale. They're like, oh, that's sexist. Of course it's sexist. It, it came about in a time when you could get lobotomized for being transgender. So, yeah, there's, there's going to be those issues. It's old, so it's going to have those issues. But it did it did raise a really interesting idea that there is a scale of intensity. And so for me, I'm, I'm clearly on the, on the milder end of the scale. I don't really struggle with dysphoria um, unless somebody perceives me as female and actively treats me specifically as female, like more so than they would treat me as a person. So I had some issues um, at my former workplace with a coworker who, you know, had a crush on me. It was pretty obvious. Everybody knew about it. And he saw me as a woman, but he didn't necessarily see me as a person. Hmm. And so it was like he was taking the very, my least favorite part of my overall makeup and putting emphasis on that and that alone. Everybody else there, you know, people generally just treat other people kind of like people. There are, there are certain gendered elements to that, but if you... And I'm very lucky to be biologically female to have this situation as opposed to being biologically male and wanting the opposite because our society is extremely accepting of tomboys. So if you get to know folks and you act like a tomboy and, you know, you're just sort of like that, over time they just kind of accept you as being you. And so you're gender nonconforming and that's who you are as a person. They know you more as a person than they know you as being specifically female. And so I don't have to deal with a lot of the the discomfort that I think I would have to deal with in other circumstances. And I don't necessarily have to deal with gender dysphoria. Um, Most of the time, people just treat me like me. And there's not necessarily an issue with the gendered elements of that. Every once in a while, that comes up. But it's not Mm. not too often because, I mean my coworkers knew me as crazy. Um, you know, I, I, 
I like doing heavy lifting. I like doing the most physically intense parts of the job. Like that's just what I like to do. That's what makes me happy. And so it's like, well, you know, I mean, she's just crazy. It's like, okay, cool. I'm crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, crazy in a not bad way. So you said that, that with, with regard to that guy who had a crush on you, that he was focusing on the least part of you. What, why do you, um, is it, what do you mean by the least? What is it about being female? That's oh. just the least favorite part. Oh, my least favorite part of myself or my least treasured part of myself. Uh, I, of all the things that I identify with about myself or all the parts of myself that I understand, the, the fact that I happen to be female is just kind of, it, it's, it's just there. It's just something that I live with. It's like, yeah, well, you know, I didn't ask for this, but here we go. Okay. Was it the site in your childhood of uh, some form of abuse or disparity of treatment? So that you have negative thoughts associated with that in a in a developmental sense? I suspect so. I, I think that there is a certain degree of, and I avoided the subject of internalized misogyny for such a long time, because anytime you say anything that, uh, that questions feminism, everybody's like, oh, that's just internalized misogyny. It's like, no, there's some genuine criticisms of feminism that can be put forward very easily. But hmm. um, I, only recently when I started realizing that I was probably autoandrophilic auto did I start looking and saying, okay, well, you don't actually like being a woman. Like you actually have some misogynistic tendencies. <laughs> um, and so I think there is like, I don't dislike other women. I don't necessarily relate well to other women. Women tend to be more socially nuanced than men in, 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 in different ways. I suppose there's some ways in which males are very socially nuanced too. I'm not going to pretend that they're blunt instruments, but, um, women there's a lot of social nuance to navigate and it's just not something i want to deal with the face you're making expresses a lot so anybody listening to the podcast she's <laughs> she's there's there's this exasperation at the thought oh, of God. dealing with women that's coming across from yeah i i <laughs> i do struggle with women a lot um hmm. and mm-hmm. so like men men are just men are easy to get along with men are very easy for me to interact with. And perhaps that's, they're just the result of excessive amounts of practice. But I mean, I already struggled with emotional, emotional understanding, emotional empathy. And then when it deals with, you know, just the social aspects of it, it's like, I can't read people. I can't read subtle body language very well. I can't tell if people like me or dislike me. And then it it just, it gets to be a point where it's like, and then there's the, there's also a, a sense that I don't necessarily have much in common with a lot of women. And that's a problem too, because of the whole uh, upbringing. Um, I, I grew up, you know, with the asthma, having to deal with uh, being sick a lot and having to, you know, kind of power through it as much as possible. Um, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of disappointment when I couldn't power through it. Uh, there was a lot of shame that came with that. And so it was something that, you know, starting in the second grade and all the way to, through middle school, it was like, you have to be strong. You have to be tough. You have to be tougher than that. You have to be even tougher than that. And if anything goes wrong, nobody's there to bail you out. You're on your own. And so I had to be, I had to be independent. I had to be resilient. I had to be as tough as possible. And a lot of things that are regarded as masculine qualities were qualities that I had to adopt in as much abundance as I possibly could. 
And, um, you know, Blanchard's idea is that it is, you know, an innate part of a person's sexuality. And I, I'm inclined to think that he's right. But I think if anything could have brought that part of me really to the forefront, that would be it, that kind of a, a, a set of circumstances. And so, you know, you get to, say, late high school after growing up like that and all the other girls are doing, you know, normal things. And I didn't know where normal was to begin with. I was so disconnected from normal. It was like, well, um, this isn't working. And then, you know, I was uh, I was struggling socially after everything that happened. Um, if you go back to... Well, going back to um, The Body Keeps the Score, there was one passage It was really interesting to me. He was talking about how uh, a girl who had been sexually abused as a child, by the time she hit her teenage years, she couldn't relate to her peers. And so she was put at a significant social disadvantage because she couldn't she couldn't relate socially. And that, you know, just further alienates her from the world around her. I wasn't abused sexually at all, but I had this thing happened to me. And so hmm. I wasn't able to relate to the world around me. I wasn't socially skilled. I had to kind of piece all of that together. And one of the things about going to a strip club and working as a stripper, it enabled me to be in an environment with lots and lots of people. Many of them were strangers who didn't have a negative, um, I don't know, preconception of me, which hmm. was nice. And I could just practice walking up to people and talking to them. And I knew that was what I had to do because I was incredibly bad at talking to people. And so, I mean, I, I practiced a lot on men, obviously. Uh, <laughs> not many women in a strip club. But I think men are just easier to relate to sometimes. They, they, have a, they, they, they seem to at least culturally have a better understanding of violence and... Um, adversity and for women they don't necessarily tend to savor violence and adversity as much <laughs> hmm. they try to avoid it a lot of the time and i don't know well, I find it makes myself, sense insofar as their role yeah. is to nurture um very vulnerable yeah. human beings yeah Being there's really a, a much higher much higher rate of negative yeah. emotion like that. yeah yeah so like, but, but what about if if it's auto Androphilia, then there's a desire to be a man. And there's not just a, an affinity for men or a, a general dislike of being a female. There's like, there's, is there like a seed, like this, this really powerful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, this, it's, it's difficult to, to push that thought further because this is very personal stuff, but. <sighs> How do you, how does it, how do you grab, well, no, I, yeah, everything's sexual at this point, so I don't know how to go any further. It's just, <laughs> a, how, how do you, how do you carry, how does that inform you beyond just how you tend to make men, men's general demeanor, broadly speaking, is just more comfortable for you? It's, there's also a part of you that wants to be a man or should be a man, maybe, or that you yes. think, or that tells you you should be a man, you should be a man, you should be a man. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily um, always thinking about that. It's, it's more, um, 
so I'll get I'll get mistaken for a man occasionally, and that always makes me incredibly happy. And again, it's this it's this moment of just golden shining. Oh hmm. yeah, this is very right. It feels right. And then usually after a moment or two, they realize you're not a man, and they're like, "Oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry." And it's like, "Well, there it goes. It shattered it." <laughs> um, it's just like I, I, I think if they're like people talk about the magic button in trans uh, the trans community, they talk about if there was a magic button that you could push that would transform you into, in my case, a man, would you push it? And it's like, well, that sounds really good, but there is no magic button. The surgeries and the hormones, I'm not at all convinced that those are healthy or as effective as we'd all like them to be. Um, and it, well, it results vary by the individual, but it's like, it, I, I just, it does. I know, I know several uh, butch lesbians specifically who have transitioned and who uh, kind of look a lot like guys, like middle-aged guys, you know, with the beard and their voice is mm -hmm. a little different, but that isn't something that would fulfill you, like taking on the, the characteristics of a man. Well, I mean, it sounds, it sounds really nice, but I... Yeah. Like to I, have a beard would be nice. Well, the beard actually never appealed to me ever. <laughs> okay. Fu Manchu? Uh, I always... What? No, no. Okay. Uh, facial hair actually just never spoke to me too much. Um, a deeper voice would be nice. But for me, it's a lot of it is skeletal. Like I, I look at it okay. and it's like, I'm, I'm a very short individual. There's no amount of hormones that will fix that. Um, and so it's like, well, you know, a lot of the things that I would change, like I, I do, I've talked with my husband about getting a breast reduction. Um, and we talked about it for years. The thing is, I'm not going to do it while I'm pregnant because as annoying as these things are, they are remarkably useful when it comes to having offspring. And so, you know, yeah. keeping them around for the foreseeable future. Um, but we have talked about uh, reduction. And the thing is, my husband's heterosexual. So I don't, it, it, it wouldn't work for him for me to become a man. Um, and so that's a, that's an obvious stumbling block. Do you in consider fact, the yourself hair, heterosexual or... Uh... I mean, if you no, could push a magic bisexual. button and you became, okay, so bisexual, okay. Uh, bisexual, primarily attracted to men, so okay. that is part of it. But um, let's see, uh, yeah, it, would, it wouldn't work for him, but the hair, oh goodness, that's what I was going to mention. We've, we've been debating the hair for some time. I compulsively cut my hair when I'm stressed out, so like hmm. um, something happened a couple of years back, now I have no hair. Um and I, I personally like it. I was thinking I was going to grow out this nice big mohawk, you know, maybe waist length mohawk and just see what I could do with that. Cause I have some different ideas and he does not like it. He's like, you know, I, I, I had short hair for most of my life before I became an exotic dancer as an exotic dancer, I grew it out so that it would earn me more money. So when he met me, I had this long, thick flowing hair and now it's gone and he's, he's actually mourning its passage. And oh. so I'm, thinking about growing it back out again to make him a little more comfortable wow. and it's hard because I keep looking at, you know, I keep looking at the clippers with, with lust in my heart, but hmm. <laughs> uh, we'll just see like what happens. He's, he's not necessarily fighting on that one. He's got enough things that he's like, yeah, you know, I've, I've got other things to be worried about at this time, but I know it would make him happy. Like he talked about, he felt really guilty one day. He was looking at a bunch of other women who were feminine and happy looking feminine. And he, he felt this sense of just kind of sadness 
And I was like, yeah, you know, it won't kill me to grow my hair back out. My big thing is muscles. If I can just, if I can just find a good workout program and get the muscles back that I used to have when I was an exotic dancer, it won't really matter that much to me if my hair is long, as long as I've got a nice, as long as I've got something, you know, to maintain a certain sense mm. of balance, I'll be okay. Mm. Um, and so, and that's kind of going back to the, 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 the Harry Benjamin scale. It's like, as long as I've, as long as I've got just enough to keep me comfortable, I'm all right. Okay. Um, I don't need to, I don't need to transition and I don't necessarily think people should be transitioning if they don't feel a need for it because the hormones I don't think are very good for a person's health. There's a lot of side effects. Um, the surgeries can be, well, particularly like bottom surgery for, um, female to male is just deeply invasive surgery. Do do you have a, uh, do you have like a like intrusive thought about having a male part uh, down there? Like, Not you an put intrusive a, did you ever thought. like throw a sock down there and like just ah, oh, it feels better. <laughs> I've no. never done that. I okay. I've, I've read about a lot of women doing that. I always thought it would feel kind of awkward. Like, I mean, I've had to. I, I'm, I'm a girl. I've had to deal with pads, and it's it's mm-hmm. the same thing. Having something down there isn't necessarily the most comfortable thing. I mean, when yeah. it's a scratchy piece of cotton, I suppose. That's, that's one thing, but, um, hmm. no, I, I mean, if, if I, again, with the magic wand thing, if I could have a fully functioning, uh, set of male genitalia, you know, there would be some, and I, I do tend to look at it from a multi-layered logistical, uh, perspective. Like on the one hand, I'd, I'd have to be, I, I would have to completely retune my sense of coordination to avoid hitting myself in that region. <laughs> Um, cause I hear that's quite uncomfortable, but on the other hand, um, it would make lifting heavy objects much easier because, um, I've already, I, I don't necessarily know when I'm pushing myself too hard. And so I've already had one situation where I was lifting something that was probably considerably heavier than I was and I was lifting it and everything was fine. And then all of a sudden I felt this, uh, this wet squirting sensation in between my legs. And I was like, Oh, that can't be good. And I had partially prolapsed part of my, uh, oh, anatomy Jesus. down there. Oh no. Um, okay. yeah. And I mean, the thing is I had the muscles to lift it, but you know, the, 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 the overall design, like there's yeah. a reason they don't want women lifting objects that are particularly heavy. And I learned that the hard way. <laughs> um, so parts of me are never going to be the same again. But it's like if I if I could wave that magic wand, I mean, yeah, men are still prone to occasional prolapse if they try to lift something too heavy. But the limitations are are not as. Uh, is this a, is this is uh, I'm just trying to gauge it. Is this like an aesthetic? Do you think it's mostly I, aesthetic? Um, like you want to look a certain way, or you want to be seen in a certain way? For me, I think it's behavioral more than aesthetic. I okay. do think the aesthetic part plays a role. Yeah. Um, but what do you mean I behavioral mean, then? Like you just want to be able to do the dude things. Oh God, yeah, yeah. You want to do the dude. Like that's where a lot of the fun comes in. Like that's the delightful okay. part of it. Um, but it there there are different. Oh, uh, uh, like there's all the different types, and I wish I had them like memorized or at least written down somewhere. You know, there's the behavioral, there's the sartorial, which is clothing, um, cross-dressing. There's all these different kind of subtypes, and I always assumed that, like with most psychological things, it's like dials on a tuning board where you know some things can be really cranked up, and some things are you know possibly completely shut off or possibly just turned on to a very small degree. 
Hmm. And so, you know, for me, the, the behavioral aspect is a huge one where I want to just hang out with men and do man things with the men and, you know, be perceived as enough of a man that I can participate in these things. And um, making YouTube videos and seeing yourself and hearing your voice, does that, is there an incongruence there in your self-perception? I mean, it's, it's the person I've always been. It's the person I see okay. in the mirror when I, when I look in the mirror, it's like, okay, um, you know, it, I tend to value uh, parts of myself that are more masculine than I think other people would. Like, I'm sure that there's a possibility that women, when they look in the mirror, they're looking at themselves and thinking, ah, you know, I look pretty today. Um, for me, it's not necessarily a prettiness that I'm trying to amplify when I'm, you know, looking in a mirror. But uh, most of the time, I'm just trying to make sure that there's nothing caught in my teeth. So... Yeah, yeah. You know. Huh. In my so I spoke with Phil Illy twice and he has a book uh oh man, I'm blanking on the name. Um but it's about auto heterosexuality. Um, yeah. Um because he's developing a theory um that includes both males and females in the auto heterosexuality and it, it's a fascinating book it's very well researched very well done in our talk so we had two talks before while i was writing it and then after he wrote it and in the second talk um but, well the first talk there was a lot of pushback on that um because my audience specifically is more um weighted in the gender critical direction um and so having a man who is talking about this in a, in a way that's positive is kind of rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. It just brings up a lot of these issues that are um, manifested through transgenderism, through um, males entering into female spaces through uh, in the sports. And then what happens to a family if the dad suddenly when he's 46, uh, you know, transitions or what happens to a family when a girl comes home suddenly and wants to transition. Like there's all these different issues that I've been exploring to just look at it from a kind of more objective point of view rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but it gave me the opportunity to kind of think through and ask him some deeper questions about the cost of autogynephilia or autohazardsexuality. But specifically with autogynephilia, the cost, it seems like to me, um, listening to Phil Illy and those of his ilk, um, transitioners, male transitioners specifically, is that if you go on a path to manifest the woman of your dreams that there's a likelihood and there's actual a physical representation of you cutting yourself off from the world and becoming a slopsistic individual where everything is always about you, about making yourself feel good about protecting your feminine side or manifesting your feminine side and the circuitry that would cause you to, albeit, you know, with a greater or lesser degree of struggle, cause you to connect to another person, cause you to, you know, have these compulsions to love a woman, to be with a woman, to want to be with a woman that, that would drive you, could drive you towards having a family, right. To, to being connected deeply with another person. And then from that connection, watching life flourish. If you give in to the desire to auto your sexuality you're interrupting um, a very large part of your human capacity and your human com co potential specifically with connection. So with that brought up, I'm wondering, does your auto androphilia, your desire to be a man interrupt 
your relationship, your ability to connect, I guess, with your husband or with your children? And to what degree have you developed ways of, have you seen it affect those connections? And how have you dealt with those in a positive way? Because it seems like you're happily married. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, he he had a a brain tumor for five years, and we're still recovering from that because that was kind of rough. Okay. Um, but we're we're definitely recovering, so that's that's good. Um, Hmm. I mean, the hair thing is is one thing where it's like I'm I I know what I want, but I know it's not what he wants, and so I'm kind of looking at like, okay, is this a priority? Um, and one of the wonderful things about being aware that it's autoandrophilia, it's like, okay this is something I want. There are reasons that I want it. How high of a priority on the priority scale is it? Um, can I get what I want through other means that will cause less conflict in my relationship? And so for me, I'm, I'm I write novels as a hobby. I've written novels as a hobby since I was little. Hmm. And so, you know, they're, they're novels that tend to be a little bit more um, adventure based. Uh, they, I've, I've been writing for so long and from such a young age that for me, writing has a, a distinctive set of feelings. Um, and so a, a female writer has a, a feeling to her. There's almost like a texture to the writing and a male writer has a texture to his writing. And I've seen, it's really interesting reading the writings of people who are transgender because after they transition, um, I've seen, I remember there was one male to female who wrote like a woman in one a uh, female to male who still wrote like a woman. <laughs> um, but I can, I can through my writing and through that, uh, that escapist kind of fantasy outlet, um, you know, kind of feed that part of myself and really satisfy that part of myself in a way that doesn't necessarily seem too destructive to my family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I write novels. And my goal eventually is to start publishing and selling them so that I can even be, you know, productive in my, in my unique quirks. Um, (laughs) but, uh, I noticed that a lot of my writing while still rather innately female, it tends to slant off toward more male interests, which, you know, like what again? Well, you know, it's not, uh, you just have large info dumps in the middle of, of some tea party. <laughs> no, um, things the, get really the, technical I, sword and sorcery or hardcore okay. sci-fi. So, okay, yeah. you know, it's, uh, and, and, you know, it tends to be, you know, a group of men and or masculine women, um, you know, going about an adventure as opposed to, I noticed that a lot of, feminine writing there's a little bit less emphasis on the adventure there's a lot more emphasis on the feelings and socializing and it's like i can't handle that so when i write a novel (laughs) there's usually like my most recent one it starts off with somebody getting trapped in an airlock and they have to figure out how to survive while the doors are opening and it's very tense and it's very fast-paced and it's very panicky and very exciting and it's like this is my happy place um and so i can I can kind of through, I, I suppose through, through fantasy and escapism sort of just feed that part of myself without really pulling too much of that part of myself into my day to day life. Uh, I, I struggle pretty deeply with not having enough muscle. Like that's a big problem of mine, but I don't know how much of that is autoandrophilic and how much of that is just me, um, using exercise to maintain good mental health. Um, 
yeah. probably, you know, six of one half dozen of the other. Yeah. So, hmm. you know, hmm. it's, it's something I need to work on because I'll be, I'm understanding more and more that I'll be a happier person for multiple reasons. If I, you know, get a good exercise routine going, which I can't now because I'm pregnant, so I can't push myself as hard as I want to, but, <laughs> yeah. um, I need to do that. But otherwise I don't, you know, the hair is going to be a, a minor issue. Um, he, he, he's mentioned that I don't wear pretty clothes anymore. And I re it was really interesting because he had the brain tumor for half a decade. And so it's like, at what point did I stop wearing pretty clothes? Cause the way I remember it, I never really wore pretty clothes except for a little bit when we started dating. And for the most part, I had like two modes. I had like the stripper gear that I would wear. And then I had like, really, really, you know, kind of baggy, um, you know, clothes that I would use to hide my shape as much as possible, which was only smart. You go into the strip club, you, you look like, you look like an excellent victim to a lot of predatory people. Yeah. So when you exit the strip club, you want to look not particularly shiny, not particularly eye catching and possibly a little bit violent if somebody crosses you the wrong way. Yeah. And nobody ever, gave me a hard time exiting the strip club. I saw girls walking in and out with like just really skimpy clothing. And it's like, yeah, that's not, I don't want to, yeah. I don't, I don't want to look any more like a potential victim than I possibly can. So when I walk out of the strip club, I want to look as butch and scary as possible. Hmm. Um, I knew a gal who used to keep a really big knife and I, I didn't keep a very big knife, but I wanted to look like I had a very big knife. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I traveled all over the country. So, I mean, I, part of it was just dumb luck that I wasn't hassled more than I was, but part of it was that I tried to look scary. So, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. With the, with the YouTube adventure that you're going on, that's how I found you because Phil Illy found you. Um, yeah. Cause you were, you were giving him favorable, uh, feedback on his work. And, uh, it seems like his work is helping you to be conscious of these aspects of you, these drives of you, these prompts that you are given, that yourself gives you of how you want to live and how you can, you know, compromise with how you need to live. How is you, what's, what's you, what is your work like that particular, that YouTube channel that you do? Is that you speaking to the public or are you hashing things out publicly and how have you developed in that and how is it developing going forward? If you think of it as something continuing, I'm trying to understand like just the trans world as a whole, mm -hmm. um, and learn about that. And I'm also like, it's, it was apparent to me before even, you know, dipping a toe into the trans world that, there are massive, massive problems in the trans community and just trans issues overall, just massive problems. And so when I started reading about it and learning about it, learning about it because I suspected that that was something going on with me, which I'm autoandrophilic, so I'm not exactly trans, but I'm hmm. pretty sure that a lot of people who are trans are either autoandrophilic, autogynophilic, or falling into this. We're all kind of currently being lumped together because the the definition that people are using for transgender is someone who's or is it someone their, whose birth sex does yeah. not uh you know is not the same as the one they identify with and it's like well i 
personally perceive myself as being male, but that doesn't mean that I am male on a biological level. So, you know, do do I count as transgender by that definition? Well, kind of technically, but I'm hoping they get a better definition soon because that's a really crappy definition. Um, But the community is just, there's so many things going on with it that are so, it's like a perfect storm. And so there's massive amounts of information um, which is very interesting. And there's also just massive problems that I think people need to be aware of. And they're not. Um, the affirmative Such care model is a one-size-fits-all model, and okay. transgender people are not one-size-fits-all people. There are different types of transgender people. There are different reasons that people become transgender or have transgender feelings, and no one's properly addressing any of that and i was reading up on tavistock there's a book that came out on tavistock and i want to add it to my my ever-expanding reading list of books that i want to do reviews on or talk about but um i i read the you know i went on amazon and i was looking at it to see whether it was something i wanted the first chapter was available so i was reading the first chapter and it's like tavistock and i think a lot of gender clinics these days are absolutely overwhelmed like inundated with patients who are coming in because they think that they have uh, gender identity issues and they aren't capable. They don't have the, the, the manpower to give proper care to these individuals. So they're green lighting a lot of people and just passing them through. And so like, obviously this is a terrible thing because a lot of people aren't being given the proper care that they need. A lot of people who should not be green lighted because they have other issues. Like for example, there's, there's there's gender dysphoria and then there's body dysmorphia and if you don't take the time to really look at them they can look like the same thing because i've had body dysmorphia it's not the same thing as gender dysphoria Hmm. and you know if you don't take the time to really look at those things they look identical and so people who are struggling with something that is not gender dysphoria are getting green lighted or people who are coming in who borderline personality disorder narcissistic personality disorder autism adhd complex PTSD, which is uh, why I was talking about like the, the mm. HPA axis, the hypothalamus. Um, a lot of these problems affect the hypothalamus. Now, thyroid disorder can also affect the hypothalamus and you don't have people with thyroid disorder showing up in droves at a gender clinic. But mm. I'm trying to understand like all the different things that could be causing um, gender issues. And then there's a, a, an intersex person that I ran into online who was uh, very intelligent, and they had been researching their own condition, which was androgen insensitivity. And if you have an intersex condition, like usually people who talk about intersex conditions or they're aware of intersex conditions, it's because they have pronounced symptoms of an intersex condition where it's like, okay, we can identify this as an intersex condition. But this individual didn't start showing symptoms until, well, noticeable symptoms, recognizable symptoms until they were in their, you know, 40s. And so their question was how many of these people who are saying they're trans and assuming they're trans um, actually have very subtle or minimalistic or undiagnosed intersex conditions. And we don't necessarily have good reasons. Yeah, just like endocrine system issues or something like that, yeah. And so ever since talking with them, what I've noticed is, I mean, I'll be reading through personal accounts of trans people, and every once in a while you come across a trans person who looks for all the world like they're biologically female. And it's like, what did you do? Oh, you know, I took some hormones, and I got electrolysis to get rid of my beard. And it's like, that that's all you did? That's all you did? 
Um, and I've wondered like, what's, what's causing that? Like, is it that people have intersex conditions or is it that there's, um, you know, something, something epigenetic or something genetic that's happening with people that there's a subsection of the trans community where they're just, they're just automatically like that. And it's, I don't know how it works with women. I know with men, it's automatically biological men. It's going to be automatically more noticeable because there's a lot more social stigma against a gender non-conforming biological male than there is against a gender non-conforming biological female. So, um, gender non-conforming biological females like, okay, you're a tomboy. No problem. You're butch. No problem. Um, gender non-conforming biological male. There's a lot more attention paid to that. So there's a lot more, there's, there's, there's a lot more frequently, I think a lot more urgency in these individuals to transition. I think that's why before the ROGD phenomenon, more men transition than women because it's like you can't pass under the radar. If you're gender nonconforming, you you have to do something or you will hmm. probably excuse, probably encounter violence. Um, and so there's there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of different factors that are affecting this, and it's absolutely fascinating. Huh. So you want, so, so you're just kind of like, so you're just kind of going through and exploring it. Yeah, going through exploring and also trying to raise awareness of some of the the more toxic problems that people are struggling mm -hmm. with, like um, transitioning children. Like it, it almost almost always is a very, it, it seems like a really bad idea. Like I haven't found any really strong arguments for um transitioning children i've seen some people who are like well you know i wish i'd been allowed to transition when i was young especially these especially like the last one i saw was today and it was a male to female um mistaken for a girl at the time as a child eventually managed to transition very angry they weren't allowed to transition earlier and i'm like yeah but you were you you were kind of a unique case in this giant because now we've got all the rogd people you know piled on, on top of everything else it's like you were you were a unique case. This is this is not necessarily the majority or the bulk of what we're seeing here. So we need to we need to be able to identify those unique cases and give them the care they need. But we also have to realize that many of the people we're seeing are not necessarily falling into that category. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of the people we're seeing are not falling into that category, mm -hmm. and that's something that you know people need to be aware of. Uh, the one size all fit, fits all treatment is just terrible for people. Like, let's just transition everybody because that's what people want, right? It's like, I don't think that's healthy. Like, transition is more drastic and probably should be reserved as more of a later stage step. If if necessary, then you can do it. But otherwise, you know, maybe hold off on that until you've really had time to weigh other con other um, other options and other things. Well, you know, and it's kind of it kind of echoes the abortion issue that once the cat is out of the once abortions available once transitions available like what can you really do um uh, people can circumvent the system they can get their hormones any which way They're, you're always going to be able to find a doctor um that will you know snip this or patch that you know because it's basically there's a lot of cosmetic surgery we can't we're not going to like outlaw breast reduction or uh, breast augmentation for for females like why would we you know, bar men from getting those services and you can't stop doctors who are willing to do that from doing that you can put pressure on the insurance system and uh just have very strong ethical um, um 
medical ethics in place, specifically with children. I think children are the only ones that uh, that that cohort is the only one that can be precluded from body modification under the umbrella of gender um, or transition. Um, but I just don't just like abortion, like once it's out, like you can only make moral arguments and say, be really careful why you want to do this. Because uh, this this isn't to be taken lightly. We don't want to take abortion lightly. We don't want to take um, sexual reassignment surgery lightly. Yeah, and I think I think kind of opening the discussion that there are alternative ways to handle it and to live with it. Yeah, um, I think that would be important. I have this I have this personal idea, and it's just kind of a it's my own idea. Um, I don't have anything to back it up, but I honestly think that um, any kind of mental illness or any kind of mental health problem um, probably amplifies gender dysphoria. And so, like, a lot of people are like, I've seen people complaining that they're not, they're, they're, we shouldn't block people's access to gender affirming care or whatever that might be, um, just because they're struggling with a mental illness. So, like, you shouldn't be um, banned or blocked. Sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you shouldn't be blocked from gender affirming care or, you know, uh, sexual reassignment surgery just because you're autistic, because that's not something that's going to go away. That's a permanent state. Um, and I've seen people complaining about that. It's like, well, you know, if I have, if I have OCD, that shouldn't block me from doing what I want to do. Um, and I see, I see people making that argument and it's like, okay, well, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. However, I think it is important for people to be aware. Um, there's a possibility and this is, again, this is my opinion, but I really think that there's a very strong possibility that gender dysphoria is amplified by any kind of mental, mental health issue or mental distress. So for me, I went through depression. Um, my husband had a brain tumor. I got depressed and, um, <laughs> I noticed that everything was amplified. And so like my, my dislike of my own body became much more intense. Um, I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to get body modification surgeries. I wanted to change everything. I couldn't stand to look in a mirror. Um, it, it got very, very intense. And as I recovered, I noticed that like, I'm still not happy with certain parts of myself, but I was, able to bear them a little bit more. And so then it was like, well, I still want to change things, but it's more of a, let's give it some time. Let's really weigh it out. Let's think about it. It wasn't tied into that sense of intense discomfort so much. So I was able to, 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 to be a little bit more, you know, rational about it. Um, or at least a little bit more, um, patient with it. And so I Do you happen think, to have endometriosis or um, issues with your uh, reproductive system, like cysts or really intensely no, not, not with negative my, uh, periods? No, no. Um, for me, I, um, I developed a, a condition called HSDD, which is hyposexual desire disorder, um, in the time that my husband had the uh, brain tumor. And so I had a, I mean, it, it varies by the individual, but basically for me, I had a complete loss of sexual function, like complete. Oh, oh hypo, not hyper. 
hypo. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I went um, in the other direction. Okay. A lot of people there, there's both. So it's really difficult to, to tell, but okay. um, now for me, it was hypo. And so I a complete loss of sexual function. Wasn't able to, wasn't able to get aroused. Wasn't able to fantasize sexually. Just wasn't comfortable with sexual feelings. I actually would start to cry when I did experience sexual feelings because they were overwhelming and I didn't feel comfortable with any of them. Hmm. Um, did that ebb as your situation changed or your depression went away? Um, well, the depression came up kind of as a result of that. So I had the HSDD for a few years because my, oh, yeah. let's see, the timeline is my husband got the brain tumor. He had that for five years, a few years in the brain tumor. I started developing the HSDD because the brain tumor was affecting his life and you know his personality changed. He was very tired all the time. He didn't feel well. And so we ended up not spending time together because he was exhausted and he didn't want to be around people. Yeah. And um, huh. so I developed HSDD. I had that for about three-ish years, um, actually three or four years, because it took a, a little while to identify that once the brain tumor had been cleared up. And then after I'd had HSDD for a while, the depression settled in because it was like, oh my gosh, my life is going to be like this forever. And then we discovered the brain tumor treated the brain tumor and that's when we realized that i had like just an inability to function sexually so they have medication for that apparently it affects like 10 percent of women so i i was going to therapy and my unfortunate choice in therapist was um she was very convinced that i had bipolar disorder instead of anything else and i she couldn't understand why i kept complaining about sex problems um and she didn't think i she put i thought i was putting too much emphasis on sex problems and so it's like very um, unsuccessful uh, therapy kind of experience. But eventually I went into my, my general practitioner and told him, you need to test me for something because something's clearly wrong with me. And he identified it as HSDD within a few minutes. And so he gave me some medication and I started feeling better and um, that helped with the depression. So then I started Was this a psychosomatic disorder or like some sort of um, vitamin you weren't taking? No, like vitamin it was... Sex? Um, pardon? Sex vitamins? Oh, vitamin sex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, he uh, apparently Wellbutrin. Uh, one of the side effects of Wellbutrin is that it will raise libido. Oh. And I was depressed anyway, so he gave me Wellbutrin, which was okay. an antidepressant, and had a side effect of raising libido. And it was just enough to help me um, achieve arousal, which I hadn't okay. been able to do before that. And then I was able to, you know, slowly start trying to pull myself back together. Um, and that was actually, that was actually the cause of, of me, like looking at my entire sexual history and going, okay, what, what excites me? What helps me to, you know, feel any of these feelings? How do I start rebuilding a sense of my own sexuality? Because everything was just, everything was gone. Hmm. And as I was looking through, like I, I decided to start at the beginning and just work my way forward. Like, okay, what's worked for me in the past? And I noticed an unusual pattern when I started at the beginning and started working my way forward. It's like, huh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, kind of unique things here <laughs> that aren't necessarily standard. I wonder what that could be. Um, and I had known for, I had known for years before that, that there was something kind of odd about me because I noticed that I kept writing novels about women who could turn themselves into men. And it was like, I wonder why I keep writing these stories. Like, huh. you know, it's fun, but I don't know what kind of a readership this is going to attract. Hmm. And and then I started putting the pieces together. So, hmm. yeah. <laughs> what, what is it about being a man then? 
Because what one uh, gender critical uh, argument against talking about this uh, transition compulsion that some people have is that how could you possibly know what it is to be a woman? How could you possibly know what it is to be a man? And I think it's kind of not the correct question. It's what is it about a man that you want to manifest? What is it about these, you know, like these women in these novels turning into a men? Like, what did they achieve? Hello? Yeah, hi. Ah, I had a bit of a, my, my earbud died on me for some reason. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, I mean, for a long time, I thought it was an interesting question. The, well, how can you, what, what does it mean to feel like a woman on the inside or to feel like yeah. a man on the inside? And that always seemed like a very strange question. And so um, I, it didn't make any kind of sense to me until I was going back over it and thinking, well, if you're not, if you're not paying attention to yourself, if you're just going about your life and doing whatever you're doing and you're not paying attention to yourself at all, and then you were distracted immediately from what you were doing. So if someone snapped their fingers in your face and said, do you feel like a man or a woman? <laughs> um, there's that moment where it's like, well, of course I feel like a man. And then it's like, well, except that I'm not only, this is a, a question you have to kind of, you have to snap your own fingers in your own mind internally, instead of, you know, having somebody else do it because we're all, I think, socially programmed to give the correct response. Um, hmm. But I noticed that for me, when I'm not thinking about it, when I'm not, concentrating on it when I'm just kind of going about my life there's a part of me that I just feel more comfortable with the masculine than I do with the feminine I, I obviously don't I, I don't have and I guess some people do I don't have like a, a phantom penis where I'm sure that it's there and then I find out that it's not um, but I do, you know, if someone was to just kind of ask me and I wasn't paying any kind of attention, there wasn't that social, you know, programming that you should answer in one way or another, I think I would just kind of automatically assume, oh, yeah, I'm a dude. And um, it wouldn't cross my mind that I was otherwise. Um, then there's the physical aspects. It's like, well, you know, you can't really escape the physical reality. But, um, you know, being gender nonconforming, you know, it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's more of a natural state, I guess, um, for me. And so I kind of find myself gravitating toward that. Um, I, I, I think I missed the tail half of your question because my earbud died on me. Yeah. It was just um, about what it is about being a man that you want, but it, but your answer is that you just feel more comfortable plugging into the yeah. world in this masculine way or it, it, it feels right. There's this sense of, of correctness to it. It's like, Oh, of course this is the way things should be. And then there's this sense of, uh, for me, it's not that it feels distinctly wrong to be female. It just doesn't, it, it's, it's mildly disappointing. <laughs> oh, yeah. It doesn't feel quite as, it doesn't feel as right. Um, and I, I mean, when it comes to, you asked how it affects my relationships. One of the things, oh, please tell me, hold on. Nope. I'm going to have to move this. My... Weird. Ah, my battery died. 
It's fine. I wasn't expecting that. I don't know how long. I know I had a full charge, but maybe my well, phone's starting to go Well, it has been out. two hours. Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I lost track of time. Um, I've probably been talking your ear off. Uh, well, um, mm. but yeah, like you, you were asking about how it affects my relationships. And um, it hasn't really affected... I don't think it's necessarily affected my relationship with my kids. Like I've been trying, I've been far more aware and far more vigilant about whether or not my, my unique upbringing issues would affect my relationship with my kids. And so I tend to be more cautious in that area. Um, As far as my relationship with my husband, you know, there's the hair issue and the, you know, wearing floral clothes kind of issues. But um, those, those, those aren't too bad because I'm usually pretty, willing to i mean the hair is the hair is difficult because i'm like i I promise i'm going to grow it out and then i end up trimming it anyway um because i just i really really want to um but the relationship issue that i have had with uh with being female that's been really difficult for me is when i first became a mother um trying to connect with my femininity was ridiculously hard for me like i remember I remember being pregnant with my first child and talking with my husband about how, well, you know, I'm trying to, cause my life was changing. It's like, okay, I can't, can't be a stripper forever. Uh, can't go to the strip clubs and be, you know, all wild and free forever, which I mean, there's a, there's a limitation on how wild and free you can be in a strip club when you're married anyway. But I was, we were working around that pretty well because the, the strip club that I was in was very restrictive law wise. And so it's not like I was doing anything crazy. Um, but, uh, just just being comfortable with the fact that I was, you know, in this social place, connecting with all the other mothers and all the other women and all the, the feminine yeah. kind of oriented things that come along with that. I was bad at that. I just, I didn't know what to do about it. <laughs> I was at a loss. And so um, that was, that was a problem. That was something I struggled with. Um, and I still kind of struggle with it, like getting to know the other moms, befriending the other moms with like, the other moms are you know, they're normal. Um, and, hmm. and you know, there was, uh, there was one mom at the, the school pickup line that I really liked, um, because I'd, I'd come out with a, with a mohawk and, you know, the two of us would sit around talking and she liked my mohawk. And so, you know, we, you know, there's that kind of superficial, you know, Oh, you know, it's, it's beautiful weather out today, kind of small talk that you make. Um, but you know, I got along well with, well enough with her, but I do kind of struggle with the other moms, number one, because it's like, um, how many married stable mothers of school children are going to be appreciative of the fact that you have a YouTube channel where all you do is talk about sex and human sexuality. Hmm. Um, Hmm. you know, that's, that's one thing. And then also just, there's so many things in my life that are not necessarily appropriate for, you know, nice, happy family oriented conversations, like, you know, the abortion, the eight mm-hmm. years as an exotic dancer, um, you know, all, all of that. It's like, how do I, how, how do I be honest and authentic with people and also, you know, not scare people away. <laughs> so that's a, that's a persistent struggle, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it is well, what it is, I guess. Some people, um, are, more eccentric than others and there's a different perspective that you have and it might be the case that the cost of that is 
normality or connection with what we call normal, what we think of as normal, but also the benefit of that is being able to see the normal or see life itself from a different or different from a different perspective and then bringing that back to the people um, can enrich them. And so, you know, you get to participate in the society, even if you don't see yourself as going with down the well-trodden path that society lays out for itself. Yeah. I, I don't do normal very well, but you know, that doesn't mean I can't, you know, do, be of some benefit. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so are you just doing the YouTube videos? You do a lot of novels and stuff like that. Where can people find your work? What work of yours is out there to be found? And where uh, is it? Currently I'm on YouTube at Oak Leaves and Onions. Mm -hmm. um, that's the best way to find me. That's where I'm posting the most stuff. Um, and at some point I, I have a novel written, I need to edit it and I need mm -hmm. to put it out there, but I'm, it's difficult to get together the discipline to sit still to edit a novel. So like mm. writing them, no problem. Editing them. It's like, can I pass this <laughs> off to someone yeah. else so that I don't have to do it? Yeah. So I'm at that point right now. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. But, yeah. It, once I finish it, I'll stick it up on YouTube and be like, Hey, I wrote this novel. So if you're, if you're into novels, what's it the about? Novel. Uh, the one that I'm working on right now is a uh, sci-fi, uh, about, a, <laughs> um, it's about a woman who gets an alien parasite, uh, in her brain. The alien parasite is male. And so she builds this relationship with this, this entity that's, only really in her own mind that's able to communicate with her hmm. um which i when i first told my husband that i thought i was you know possibly transgender he thought i'd fallen for a social contagion and uh, the way that i kind of showed him that i hadn't was i just pulled out all my novels and i was like take a look at this <laughs> yeah. and he was like oh yeah so it's it's one of those kind of oh yeah kinds of novels like if you look at it it sort of makes sense that's somebody with an alternate perspective in the world wrote it, yeah. I guess. But, um, it's, I it's really, a sci-fi novel. I really admire your dedication to your family and the openness, not just with which you've spoken of that, but it just seems like the way you talk about your husband, uh, there's evidently a lot of devotion where you, you know, you debate about the hair, you debate about the clothes and it seems like you really want to, this, this sounds wrong, but like fulfill your end of the bargain, you know, like bring, bring your best self to that relationship. And then also like your uh, devotion to being a, a woman with progeny uh, is very admirable. Uh, so you are thank rather you. weird, but it's a delight <laughs> to have gotten to know you. So thank you very much for accepting my invitation and being so yeah. candid. Well, thank you for having me here. This was awesome. My pleasure. I'm going to end the show.